Now, one of the reasons that we've followed along here in 2 Timothy is because it actually is almost a part of 1 Timothy, and you have a calendar of events here that I think will help orient you into the position that 2 Timothy occupies in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, we have dates something like this, and these are approximate and not given in a dogmatic fashion. Paul was apparently arrested in Jerusalem in 58 A.D., and having spent about three years, he arrived in Rome in approximately 61 A.D., and he spent those three years, of course, in prison, going from one trial to another before different Roman rulers. And then you have that period that's called his first Roman imprisonment from approximately 61 through 63. And it would seem, though, that we do not have that section in the book of Acts at all. The book of Acts breaks off at the time of his first Roman imprisonment. In fact, I would think at the very beginning of it. Then from approximately 64... To 67, he was released from prison. And I think that during that period, Paul covered a great deal of territory. And we find that it was during that period that he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus, and he did that from Macedonia. And then he was arrested again in about 67 A.D., and he was put to death, beheaded. And before he died, he wrote Second Timothy, and he wrote that prior to his death in Rome. Now, this second epistle of Timothy is actually, therefore, the deathbed statement of Paul. And the deathbed statement of any individual, it seems to me, has an importance which is not attached to his other remarks. This is... I think what lends significance to 2 Timothy. It's the deathbed communication of Paul. It's his final message. And there's a note of sadness, I think, which is not detected in his other epistles. But there's also the overtone of triumph. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. That's Paul's epitaph, and he wrote it himself. Now, this epistle is very personal. There is approximately 25 or 27 people mentioned by name, which is quite interesting, in just four chapters. So, it makes this epistle a tremendous epistle, therefore, and we do want to listen to its message in a very definite way. Now, I believe that there are certain verses here, two of them, that sound the tone and give the theme of this particular epistle. The first one is 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then the other is 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, be diligent in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So that these are very important words 
that we have in this epistle here. And you can, I think, emphasize one word here above other words. That is the word loyalty. And you have loyalty in suffering in chapter 1, loyalty in service in chapter 2, and loyalty in apostasy in chapter 3 down through chapter 4, verse 5. And then from the rest of the book, the Lord loyal to his servants even in desertion. Now, the thing that hangs like an ominous cloud over the book, it's like a cloud way yonder in the distance. Remember, Elijah sent his servant to see there was a cloud coming. And he came back and says, there's a cloud about the size of a man's hand. And uh, Elijah said to his servant and also to old Ahab, he said, you better get your hip boots. It's going to rain. And believe me, there's a weather prophet that knew what he was talking about because it rained. And the drought was over. And what you have in this little book of Second Timothy is the apostasy, a dark cloud on the horizon. Now, that has broken like a storm, like a tornado a Texas tornado on the world today and in the church. Now, what do you mean by apostasy? Well, Webster defines apostasy as total desertion of the principles of faith. And as we indicated back in the first epistle, apostasy is not due to ignorance. It's a heresy. Apostasy is deliberate error. It is intentional departure from the faith. An apostate is one who knows the truth of the gospel and the doctrines of the faith, but he has repudiated them. He has rejected them. Now, Paul here in Second Timothy speaks of the ultimate outcome of gospel preaching. The final fruition will not be the total conversion of mankind nor will it usher in the millennium. On the contrary, there will come about an apostasy which will well nigh blot out the faith from the earth. And in fact, there are two departures at the end of the age. One is the departure of the church, which is called the rapture by Paul, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's a departure. And that leads to the departure of the organization, the old shell of the church that's left down here, a total departure from the faith that enabled the Lord Jesus Christ to give these startling words, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find the faith on the earth. And that is couched in the Greek language in such a way that the answer is, No, he will not. Now, this, of course, is not in keeping with a social gospel today, which expects to transform the world by tinkering with the social system. These vain optimists have no patience with the doleful words of Second Timothy, and they call me an intellectual obscurantist. And whatever that is, it's not good. But nevertheless... The cold and hard facts of history and the events of the present hour demonstrate the accuracy of Paul. We are now in the midst 
of an apostasy which is cut to the pattern of Paul's words in remarkable detail. Now, the visible church has entered the orbit of an awful apostasy. The invisible church today is still here, and I wish it was a little more visible than it is, but it's on the way to the epiphany of glory. It's on the way to the rapture today. And it is a very comforting thought in these days in which we live. Now, the thing that's being preached today, and Paul's going to emphasize the Word of God here as he does not in any other epistle. In fact, both Paul and Peter are in agreement. Both of them wrote a swan song. Second Timothy and Second Peter are that. And in both of those epistles, they put the emphasis upon the Word of God and the gospel. Now, I'd like to say just a word or two here at this particular juncture, that the gospel preaching rests upon a tremendous fact, and that fact is the total depravity of man, that man is a lost sinner. And someone has put it like this, and I'd like to pass it on to you. Where education assumes that the moral nature of man is capable of improvement, traditional Christianity assumes that the moral nature of man is corrupt and absolutely bad. Where it is assumed in education that an outside human agent may be instrumental in the moral improvement of man, In traditional Christianity, it is assumed that the agent is God, and even so, the moral nature of man is not improved, but exchanged for a new one. That's very important to see. And therefore, man is in such a state that man cannot be saved by perfect obedience, because he cannot render it. And he cannot be saved by imperfect obedience, because God will not accept it. Therefore, the only solution is the gospel of the grace of God that reaches down and saves a sinner on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ, and that transforms human life. We have too many cases. We have a showcase today all over this land of men and women who've been transformed by the gospel of the grace of God. Therefore, this type of liberal preaching, and I think it actually goes in three different directions. There is being preached today from the pulpit by liberalism what is really popular psychology. And it goes something like this. How to overcome. We shall overcome. It's how to think creatively how to think affirmatively or positively. Oh, my, we're on the way, upward and onward forever. That's popular psychology. And it doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere very fast. Then the second is ethics. Well, that preaches a nice little sweet gospel, a sermonette preached by a preacherette, the Christianettes. And believe me, The message goes something like this. Good is better than evil because it's nicer and it gets you into less trouble. And the thing we've said before, that the picture of the 
average church today, especially in liberalism, is that a mild-mannered man gets up before a group of mild-mannered people and he urges them to be more mild-mannered. And there's nothing quite as insipid as that. No wonder the Lord Jesus said, the church of Laodicea, that you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That'd make anybody sick in his stomach. And that's another reason I call these people Alka-Seltzer Christians. They're not only fizz, foam, and froth, but they make you need an Alka-Seltzer. Then there's the third, and that's called a social gospel. And that preaches better race relations, pacifism, social justice, the Christian social order. And it's Christian socialism, pure and simple. Now, when the real gospel is preached and men come to Christ, we're all brothers. So you don't need all this talk about better race relations. You can't create it by forcing people together. Only the gospel of the grace of God makes a man a brother of mine. And when he does, doesn't make much difference about his skin at all. That's not the important thing. And we need to recognize, as Martin Luther put it, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. And that is the message that should go out, and the only message that can affect a sin-sick world at the present time. Now, that makes this epistle here rather important, you see. Now, with that in mind, Let's come here to the very first chapter, and I have labeled this in my outline, Afflictions of the Gospel. And we have in the first seven verses his introduction. He says, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And you remember in first epistle, he said, by the commandment of God. And we said at the time that the commandments of God reveal the will of God, but that's not the total will of God. But here, it's the will of God according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Now, how do you accept the promise? Well, you do it by faith. The only way you can accept eternal life, he offers it to you, it's a gift. And a gift is something you have to believe in the giver, not in the gift, but the giver. And the Lord Jesus gives you eternal life when you trust him as Savior because he paid the penalty of your sin and he today can offer you heaven on the basis of your faith, your trust in him. You honor him when you believe him and you come his way. And therefore, the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus makes it clear this is the only place you can get it friends, and it's through Christ. Now he says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Timothy was a great joy to the apostle Paul. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace. And as we indicated before in the first epistle, we have here the addition of mercy. And Paul needed a great deal of it. We do too. And today, God is rich in mercy. And it's from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the emphasis here is upon the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. 
that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Now, you can add, by the way, Timothy to the prayer list of the Apostle Paul. Remember, I told you that when I taught in the Bible Institute, I always had the students make a prayer list of the Apostle Paul. Every time he said he prayed for somebody, write their name down. Well, Timothy was on that prayer list. By the way, how many preachers do you have on your prayer list? I hope you have your pastor. And I hope you have this poor preacher on the prayer list also. Now he says, "...greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy." Timothy loved Paul. That's quite obvious. And Paul loved Timothy, and that's obvious. And the very fact that Paul now is arrested and back in prison, going to be put to death, well, I tell you, that has really affected Timothy. And Paul says, I'm mindful of your tears, but I want you to know that when I get a good word from you, and if I could only see you, that would bring joy to my heart. How wonderful this is. And then he says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that's in thee, Now, Paul came out of Judaism, but this boy Timothy was brought up apparently in a Christian home, which first dwelt in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that's in thee also. Well, the faith that apparently his grandmother was a Christian, his mother was a Christian, And that had a lot to do with this young man turning to Christ. Now, verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now, Paul put his hand on Timothy. Why? Timothy shared with him in the gift of teaching the Word of God and getting the Word of God out. This is a Very wonderful thing. And Timothy, we must remember, had a godly grandmother and a godly mother. His father was a Greek, and it's not known whether or not he ever became a child of God. But at least he had a mother and grandmother. That had a great deal to do, I'm sure, with his decision. I would like to go over verse 6 very briefly here for a very definite purpose, as you shall see. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now, we've already discussed about the meaning of the putting on of hands. That meant that Timothy was a partner with Paul, and I'm of the opinion that the mantle of Paul fell upon Timothy. I believe that was Paul's intention. This young man was close to Paul, and when he was in prison in Rome, he said, Of Timothy, I have no man like-minded. That is, here was a man that could carry on the teaching and preaching of Paul. And therefore, the laying on of hands said, He's my partner. We're together in this. We join together in this. And I wish I could put my hands on many of you to make you partners in this ministry because we want you to be a partner in of getting out the Word. 
But now, notice what Paul has said here, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee. Now, this man had a gift, and Paul urges him to stir it up. Now, what would that indicate to you? I do not want in any way to cast any reflection on this young man, Timothy, because I think he was a wonderful young man. But Paul, at this time, he was in Macedonia. And this young man was in Ephesus. And Ephesus was the place where there was the temple of Diana, one of the great sin spots in the Roman world. And there were many allurements. There were many enticements in the city there for a young man in Ephesus. And Paul knew that, for Paul had spent three years there. And I'm just wondering if maybe he was afraid that Timothy might be reluctant and hold back and that there might be a danger. You can see in this the concern of the apostle Paul for this young man. He loved him, and about every verse makes that clear. He calls him, "'My dearly beloved son.'" How lovely. That was in verse 2. Now, will you notice in verse 7, he says, "...for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind." Now, this word fear actually could be better translated cowardice. Now, I think that a great many of us have misinterpreted this, and I know I have in the past, I remember that when I first began to travel by air, I didn't want to. I had to to make engagements, still do. And I do a great deal of flying because I have to do that. But I don't enjoy it. And at first, this disturbed me a great deal. Many years ago, I would make a flight, and then I would lie on a board filled with nails, as it were, rebuking myself because of my fear. Well, fear is a natural thing, and it's a good thing. I'm really afraid of a lion. I would not want to meet one in the street. The Scripture has something to say about that. A lion that's loose in the street. Well, I want to tell you, I'm going to look for a good place to hide from a lion. I have a fear of a lion. And I think that's a normal human being to have fear. And many of us, for some reason, have a fear of flying, of height. And it is something that we try to fight. I prayed about it. And I used to wonder why the Lord didn't remove that from me. But I just kept right on flying. Now, may I say this? What Paul is saying here is this. God hath not given us the spirit of cowardice, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, actually, sound mind here means discipline. In other words, God does not intend that defeat should be the norm of Christian living. In other words, we should be disciplined Christians and not be a slave to our emotions. Many of us today are slaves to our emotions, and we are moved by that. And that's the reason that when the picture of a poor little hungry orphan is put on literature, 
people will send in money. I've been looking around for a picture. There have been times in this broadcast, I wonder, maybe we didn't need something like that. Why? It appeals to people's emotions. Now, Christians ought not to be motivated by emotions at all. I think, frankly, we can be carried away by them. Therefore, our emotions are not to master us. We're to be disciplined. All right, let's come back to this. Is it wrong to have fear of flying? No, it would be wrong to stay home. You see, if you're a disciplined Christian, you're going to grit your teeth, go down and get that ticket, and you're going to take that trip because it's in the Lord's work and it's essential for the thing that you're to do in your lifestyle for God. Therefore, you do that. Why? Because you're disciplined, you're living and overcoming your emotions. And then you're going to sit there like I do, gritting your teeth and wondering how many more hours it'll be. And every hour seems like an eternity. And if the plane starts bouncing around, I always have a tendency to grab the seat in front of me. And I don't know why I do that. I thought that through. Because that seat in front of me is not any safer than the seat I'm sitting in. But I don't know. I grab hold of it and I feel a little better when I do that. Now, this verse... It's a wonderful verse. You and I are to overcome these things. God doesn't intend for us to be defeated Christians in our lives today. Now, a great many people, their emotions have so affected them that they, well, very frankly, on the trip I made to Bible lands, I didn't want to go to Egypt because I'd had a bad experience there, and I was very emotional about it. I just didn't like Cairo, Egypt. And I didn't want to go there. But actually, the Lord forced it on me. I was going into Jerusalem and wait for the tour group there and have a couple of days to rest. But every hotel was filled. We couldn't get a reservation. So I said, I'll be smart. I'll stay in Athens and wait for them and fly over when they fly over. But you know what? They wouldn't let me stay in the hotel because the space had all sold out. And there wasn't but one place for me to go, and that was to Cairo, Egypt. I'm glad I went. Now, actually, it was forced on me to do it. But I thank God I overcame my emotions, and I didn't overcome them. The Lord forced it on me. But I'm thankful that he did, because not only had a delightful visit, I learned a great deal. Now, I believe that that's the meaning of this verse here. Now, let me move on. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Now, I've just read, by the way, verse 8 of chapter 1 of Second Timothy. I think probably I ought to say a word or two relative to this verse here. I have labeled this chapter, Afflictions of the Gospel. And there is a feeling today that the Christian life is a life that ought to be very easy and nice and sweet, and that it'll be bright and breezy. I'm afraid that a great many of us think that we have an indulgent Heavenly Father that he's going to just put us on a bed of roses, remove every stone out of the pathway, and that nothing is really going to happen that's going to be very serious. Well, my friend, 
He's saved us. He's called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. The very important thing for us to note here is that even the Lord Jesus made it clear that we were going to have trouble. He says, in the world you shall have trouble, tribulation. The Christian will not go through the great tribulation, but you and I are sure going through the little tribulation. We're going to have trouble in this life. And to attempt to avoid that and think that because we're Christians that we can avoid it. Someone sent me, he's a man that's a lawyer down in San Clemente, he's retired now, and he sent me some statements that they found in wills which are quite interesting. Here is one. It says, "...to my son I leave the pleasure of earning a living." For 25 years, he thought the pleasure was mine. He was mistaken. (laughs) May I say to you that a great many folk feel that way about our Heavenly Father. That means that everything's going to be easy. Well, may I say to you, the Christian life is just simply not that kind of a life. Samuel Rutherford made this kind of a statement. He says, if you were not strangers here... The hounds of the world would not bark at you. And the Lord Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. There's something wrong if you become too popular as a Christian. I'm afraid a great many Christians are like a little boy in Sunday school. The teacher said, Johnny, which of the parables do you like best? And the little fellow said, the one where somebody loaves and fishes. And I'm of the opinion that a great many people think that's the Christian life. My friend, it's not. Paul says here, you're a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who hath saved us. Now, let me go over this again. And called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, this is, may I say again, a very wonderful verse here for the child of God. God's wonderful purpose in the gospel, it was hidden in ages past, but it's now revealed through Paul, you see, according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the world began. But we've been told that this has been a mystery. And it was hidden in ages past. Now, we find here that we are to take the place down here of one that is going to have to pay a price. And God has a purpose in mind when he does that. He called us, and he called us to this for a very definite reason. Now, let me move on here. Second Timothy Chapter 1, verse 10. Now I'm reading. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now this is a very wonderful verse. It's a verse that we need to put a great emphasis on, and I'd like to do that. Who hath abolished death is, I think, since he has made of none effect death. In other words, 
death means something altogether different to the child of God today. And he's made it of no effect. Now, God did not eliminate death by the cross. The very interesting thing to note is that the man who wrote this was in prison again with the sentence of death upon him. And what he's talking about here is not physical death, but spiritual death, eternal death. That is, eternal separation from God. Now, Christ has abolished that so that no sinner need go to a place where he'll be eternally separated from God. Because today, he's the mediator, one mediator between God and man. He has satisfied God, and he's satisfied man. In fact, God is satisfied with what Christ has done for us. And the great question today is, are you satisfied? And that's what it means. You be reconciled to God, God's reconciled to you. And let me repeat what I said last time. Man cannot be saved by perfect obedience. He cannot render it. He cannot be saved by imperfect obedience because God will not accept it. And that leaves only one solution to the dilemma, and that is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now, this is tremendous here, you see. And now he says, verse 11, "...under which I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles." Now, he's a preacher, he's a herald of the Word of God. And he was an apostle, and he was a teacher. And he had several gifts, you see, the apostles did. I doubt whether any man has more than one gift. I heard Dr. Chaffer say one time he'd never met anybody he thought had more than one gift or anybody thought he had two gifts. Now, I've met preachers who thought they could sing. And my experience has been either they couldn't sing or they couldn't preach. If it wasn't one, it was the other. And I've always been wanting the gift of singing, but I sure don't have that. Frankly, I don't believe he'd let you have two gifts because... It's difficult enough to exercise one. Now, will you notice, verse 12, "...for which cause I also suffer these things." Now, he's in prison. Sentence of death is upon him. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. And that's very important for us to note here. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. And that's one of the words that appears here. Paul said to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he urges Timothy not to be ashamed either. Back there in verse 8, "...be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord." Now, sometimes people are reluctant, Christians, to witness. I'm amazed that we are all tongue-tied at times, but we ought not to be. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now, that which I have committed unto him should be that which has been committed unto me, or better still, my deposit. He's made a deposit with me, and that's what made him debtor to the entire world. And you and I are debtors today. We hear Christians say, I pay my honest debts. You and I haven't paid our honest debt until every man on top side of this earth hears the gospel. Now, he says that he's able to keep it. 
And that, my friend, is a great comfort today to know that we are in his hands. Now he says here, verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words. And I insist that the words of Scripture are inspired. I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. And I do not believe that any other viewpoint is satisfactory and certainly does not satisfy Scripture. We're going to have occasion to talk about that later in this epistle. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwelleth in us. And that is important to see that the Christian life is only lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because this thing he talked about back there of power and of love and of a sound mind, that's all the fruit of the Spirit of God. Now, verse 15, "...this thou knowest, that all they who are in Asia turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes." And Paul really calls them by name, does he not? Those that have been unfaithful here, and these apparently had been unfaithful. It's quite interesting to note here that back in the first epistle, he says, some have fallen away. And now, here in Second Timothy, he says, all have forsaken me. Some had forsaken him before. I call your attention to that because there have been several that have called attention to it. It seems to me that the apostasy is not the thing that characterizes the last days, but you're going to see it, and we have seen it through the entire history of the church. I had a church history professor one time said that the history of the church is the history of apostasy, or, as he put it, the history of heresies. Well, how true that's been. And I think that's the point Paul has in mind. Now he said, "...the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, was not ashamed of my chain." Well, here is a wonderful saint of God. I'd love to have been Onesiphorus, and I'd hated to have been Hermogenes. Now he says, "...but when he was in Rome... He sought me out very diligently and found me. Isn't that lovely? Paul's in prison. But this man, probably their own business, an important businessman, he looks up Paul. <laughs> probably Paul led him to the Lord. And you can't despise the man who led you to the Lord. That is, if you've been genuinely led to the Lord. Verse 18, "...the Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day." And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. And I take it that he lived in Ephesus, made a trip over to Rome. Apparently, do you gather from this epistle, there's a great deal of travel in the Roman world of that day. Now, friends, we've come to the delightful second chapter of Second Timothy. And this is a very wonderful chapter, by the way. And I've labeled it active in service. There are some very interesting things that we have here in this chapter. There are seven figures of speech that are used to describe the duty and the activity of a believer 
And I think that it should be impressed more and more as we come to the end time into which we live. Now, you'll notice in this section here that there are seven that are used. And Paul, you remember in the first chapter, talked to this young Timothy about his calling, about the fact that he had a gift and that he today is to accept the afflictions of the gospel and that he's to take a stand for Christ. Now he begins this chapter with the first figure of speech, Thou therefore my son. Now, Timothy was not the son of Paul in a physical way. He was the spiritual father in the sense that it was under his ministry that this young man had turned to Christ. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, a child of God here needs to recognize that he's been born into God's family by his faith in Christ. Born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. He's now in the family of God, and he's a child of God. And because of that, he says, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Now, I love that. Be strong in grace. My friend, if you think today that you can grit your teeth and go out and do it on your own, you are in for a grave disappointment. And if you feel like somehow or another you can follow a few little rules, there are a lot of gimmicks abroad today. They're quite clever that if you do this first one, this one, and the next one, everything's going to work out all right. Well, don't you detect that that's just another legal system that's being given to you today that appeals actually to the old man? Paul has no rules, and the Word of God has no rules today for the child of God actually to live the Christian life. We are saved by grace. We're to live by the grace of God and be strong in that grace of God. Now, let's come to this this way. May I say to you, my dad used to give me, he traveled a great deal in the work that he was in. He was away from home a great deal, and he always put out a few rules for me when he left. Some of them I did. I had to cut the wood, and I didn't mind that. One time we had a place that had a lot of trees on it, and I would cut down the trees, and I would cut up the wood. I enjoyed that. Marvelous exercise, by the way. And I enjoyed it very much. But he had some other rules that, frankly, I didn't go for. And I hate to say it, but one of them was that I was to go to Sunday school. The interesting thing is, he didn't go himself, but he always made me go. And when he's away from home, I didn't go. I went fishing one time, and he came home suddenly and came down and found me. I didn't even know he was in a mile of the place, and I was doing pretty good. I pulled out a fish. I pulled it out, and it came back up, and I turned around, and I stood my dad. And he said to me, he said, son, you haven't any luck. <laughs> my luck ran out right at that moment. But even at that time, I appealed to him. He's my father. He's my dad. And I didn't know it later on, 
But I found out he was a heavy drinker, and I found out he'd lived a pretty wild life. And I appealed to him, not knowing that, though, that I'd done wrong, and by grace, he is good to me. And he said, I brought home a sack of candy for you and your sister to divide. I wasn't going to let you have it, but I think I will now. You know, may I say to you, I really took advantage of his good nature and the fact I was his son. Now, he died when I was 14, and I now had a heavenly father since then. And I sure do appeal to his grace. And he's my heavenly father. When things go wrong down here, I go to him, and I appeal to him. And when I fail, I don't run from him. I used to, but I don't anymore, because I don't want to get out on the end of that switch. That's where it stings. I come in close to him. And my friend, that's where it won't hurt very much. We're a son. What a marvelous figure of speech. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. When I hear Christians say today, I don't do this, I don't do the other thing, and I'm following a little set of rules, and I'm going down this particular program, I know immediately they know very little about the grace of God. They know very little about the grace of God. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now he says, And the things that thou hast heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now Paul was greatly concerned about the future, and rightly so. I think all of us, as we approach the conclusion of our ministry, we wonder about the future. We wonder whether there'll be coming along men who will preach and teach the Word of God. And sometimes we develop an Elijah complex. I know I have at times. When I was in downtown Los Angeles, there were times I felt like Elijah and said, Oh, Lord, I'm the only one left. But I found out that that's all wrong today. One of the greatest thrills to me right now is since I've retired, The Lord has raised up all of a sudden right here in Southern California some of the finest young preachers that I know anywhere. And I've traveled across the country, and I wouldn't dare begin to mention these men because I'd leave out some good ones. But in many places I've been at health meetings, I find young men there that are standing for the things of God today. And that's a real concern. And Timothy was to teach in order that these things might be given to faithful men, and they will be able to teach others also. God will raise up men with gifts, and I'm of the opinion that that's the way that he moves today. Now, as a son of God, we ought to be concerned about our Father's business. The Lord Jesus, as a boy in his humanity, said, I must be about my Father's business. Well, I've become a son of God, not like the Lord Jesus, but I've become a son of God through faith in him. As many as received him, to them gave he the right, the authority to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more in a lesson, simply believe in his name. Now, I'm interested in my father's business. By the way, are you interested in your father's business, of getting out the word of God today? And that's what Paul's talking about. Paul is not Here, talking about these little side issues today, there's many a side show that's called the main circus, and it's not. 
And the main circus, the main business is getting out the Word of God. And you and I today need to recognize we need the grace of God in our lives as His Son. Somebody says today, well, I'm disappointed in myself. You are? Well, that means you must have believed in yourself, and you shouldn't have. (laughs) You're walking by the grace of God. We walk by faith and not by sight. Then somebody says, well, I'm discouraged. Well, that means you do not believe God's Word and way of blessing. You really thought you could do it your way, and now you're discouraged. And then there are those that say, well, I hope I can do better. Well, actually, then you do expect to get some good out of the old nature. My friend, be strong in the grace of God today. Now, I move down to verse 3 of chapter 2 of Second Timothy. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A good soldier of Jesus Christ. Well, Christian is a soldier. Now, that means there's a battle to be won. And the number one is put down here of the seven figures of speech, a good soldier. Number one is my son. And number two is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, how is the child of God a soldier? Well, we saw in the last chapter of Ephesians, he's fighting a spiritual battle and that he needs the armor of God. Now, he says in verse 4 here, "...no man that warreth entangling himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Now, can you imagine a soldier in the midst of battle going to his lieutenant or sergeant and saying, well, sergeant, I'm sorry to have to leave, but I've got to go over into the city and make a deposit and see about some business over there, and then I got a date with a girl, a local girl tonight, and I just won't be able to be here. Can you imagine a soldier doing that in the midst of battle? Well, a great many Christians are trying to fight like that today. No man warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Now, this is, of course, a matter of priorities. Here he is to endure hardness, and that means to suffer hardness with Paul. That is the thing that he's talking about here. And I do not think that this in any way means that a man is not to get married. There are those that have used that as an argument and used this verse. hasn't anything in the world to do with that. It means to be entangled in the world down here in such a way that he's not able really to live the Christian life or that sort of thing. I had a lady call me one time in Los Angeles, and she said I was at church. And when you asked for those to accept Christ, I accepted Christ, but I made no move at all from my seat. And the reason is... But my husband died recently, and he and I operated a liquor store. And I'm running the liquor store. And I wondered about it. And I'm calling you now, because I don't think I can continue. Now, if you say, get a hammer and go in there and break every bottle, I'll do it. 
but you tell me what to do. Now, what would you have said? Now, I'm going to get some letters on this one, by the way. I'll tell you what I told her. I said, don't go in there and break bottles. You won't stop the liquor business breaking up a few bottles. If you could, I'd be for that. But that's been your only income. I would say sell it and go out of the business. That's the way that you're not to entangle yourself in the things of this life. And that is, in my judgment, the thing that the child of God is to recognize, that you and I, as a soldier today, we are to understand that the Christian life is not a playground, but it's a battlefield. And it's a battlefield where battles are being won and actually battles are being lost. And therefore, the child of God is to recognize that there's a spiritual battle on. Now, will you notice, he says in verse 5, And if a man also strive... Now, the man here means an athlete. If a man also strive for masteries. That is, he wants to win the game. Yet he is not crowned except he strive lawfully. And strive here refers to contending in the game. And this is the third figure of speech. If a man also strive, an athlete. Now, someone has put it like this in a very succinct manner. The only exercise some Christians get is jumping to conclusions, running down their friends, sidestepping responsibility, and pushing their luck. Well, that's not the kind of exercise here that Paul is talking about. He spoke of the Christian life as being a race course. And he says, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Then Paul also said that everyone that is striving for a crown, he keeps himself under control. He does that. And Paul says, I want to keep myself under control. I want to run the Christian race in such a way that the one who is down there at the end of the race, the Lord Jesus, will be able to reward me and be able to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. How important that is. And we need to recognize that, by the way, friends, that this is something that is all important for the child of God. Now, he is to try to win a prize. That is perfectly legitimate. And he is to do it by striving lawfully, that there's no shortcut. And that's my reason for believing that all of this gimmickry today, that you can go through a little course or you can get a few little rules and regulations, my friend, God gave 66 books, and they're pretty important, every one of them. And it takes the composite picture to give us the mind and the Word of God. An athlete can't cut the corner of a racetrack, and neither can a baseball player skip by second base without touching it. He's got to touch all the bases, and the child of God has to do that if you're going to win. You can't take these shortcuts. Now, we come to the fourth figure of speech. 
the farmer that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. And that simply means the one who is a farmer is the one that is to till the field. He is the one that sows the seed of the Word of God. And therefore, he's the one that's going to enjoy. We hear a great deal today about laying sheaves at the feet of Jesus. Well, that's great. I sure hope that we'll be able to put a few there. I'd love to think that we could put a few there. But my friend, there's got to be here the sowing and the laboring, the sowing of the seed. And then if he does that, then there will be a harvest. One of the reasons, friends, I don't cooperate with these great movements that are abroad today about they're going to convert the world, evangelize the world. Well, I'm doing my thing here in the way that I see fit, but my feeling is that the Word of God has to be sown today. And I take the position that the total Word of God must be sown. Well, he says here, verse 7, now, "...consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things." Now, he brings in, this is a wonderful verse. Our translation has it, "...remember that Jesus Christ..." Now, that word, that, is not in the original. It's been put there. "...remember Jesus Christ." Isn't that lovely? Paul just stops to say, "...remember Jesus Christ." Regardless, remember Jesus Christ. And what about him? He's of the seed of David. That means he's going to sit on David's throne down here. He was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now, it's Paul's gospel because he's the one that preached this gospel. That's important to see. Now, he says, for which I suffer trouble. And I believe you'll get in a little trouble if you stand for the word of God. You'll get in trouble as an evildoer, even under bonds, but the Word of God's not bound. And Paul was in chains, but Paul discovered that the Word of God was going out and did go out in the Roman world. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And he made it very clear that even in that Roman world, with a mad Caesar on the throne, a dictator of dictators. And he had put Paul in prison. Paul says, I'm in bonds. Word of God is not in bonds. Thank God. It goes out today and will continue to go out. God says that. Now we come to verse 11. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Now, again here, this should be if we have died with him. When did we die with him? When he died, 1,900 years ago, buried with him in identification by baptism and raised with him in newness of life. Now, if we died with him, we'll live with him. And if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, first of all, if we have trusted Christ and he bore our sins, he died for us. That's the first thing. That means we're going to live with him. He was raised from the dead. We are going to be raised. We're going to be with him. Now, 
if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Now, I personally believe that not all believers are going to reign with him. I know that there are those that differ with us in that, but that's all right. I believe this is now another group. This narrows it down to those that have suffered with him. I'd sure be embarrassed if I was put on the same par with the Apostle Paul in heaven. I'd be apologizing to him every moment for being along by his side. And I very frankly don't think I shall be. And I won't be disappointed if I'm not. I think that if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Now, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, as a child of God, you can't deny him. Now, in that Roman world, I tell you that many Christians were made martyrs, five million of them, according to Fox, because they wouldn't deny him. Now, we're told if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, this is, I think, very strong language, but Paul also believed that faith without works is dead. Paul and James never were in contradiction at all. After all, James was talking about the works of faith, and Paul is saying that faith will produce works, and if it doesn't, something is radically wrong. Calvin put it like this, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Now, verse 13, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Now, according to the nature of Christ, he cannot accept as true one who's false. That's the reason that he gave such a scathing denunciation of the religious rulers of that day. He called them hypocrites. They were pretending to be something they were not. And if Christ accepted someone who's not genuine, why, he actually would be denying himself, because he's true. He is the truth. Therefore, we must be genuine, friends. That's the important thing here. Now, verse 14, he says here, "...of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit." but to the subverting of the hearers. Now, actually, this has to do about disputes of words. And actually, what we have here is the fact that God's people need to remember that we need to stick to essentials. We don't need to argue about empty words and philosophies and about our little differences. I read a letter from a pastor of Assembly of God. He said that, he appreciated our ministry. He receives our notes and outlines. He recommends it to his church. He says, now, we don't agree on everything, and we don't. I can't see his point on certain things. He can't see mine either. And maybe when we get up in the presence of Christ, we're going to find out what the man said once. He said, there are always three sides to every question, your side and my side, and then the right side. And maybe we both are going to have to be straightened out. But the important thing, he and I ought not to argue for the very simple reason that we agree on too many things. And that's the way he wants it, and that's the way I want it. Because I think we waste a lot of time in this negative approach of trying to correct 
other believers. Now, it's hard to correct a believer, I'll tell you that. But instead of doing that, let's try to stay on the positive side. Accentuate the positive. Used to be a song a long time ago, I remember. Now, verse 15, he says here, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, that's another thing. A child of God is a workman. And here he is to show thyself. Actually means to present thyself. Study to present yourself unto God. A workman here evidently means a teacher. And this is the fifth figure of speech. A child of God is a teacher. And that means he's to be a student, and he's to study. That needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that means to handle rightly. Now, I want to hold that for just a moment, because I feel like this is, frankly, rather important here. To rightly divide the word of God means that he's to be a skilled workman, like an artisan, a student of the word. And that he must understand that the Word of God is one great bundle of truth. And that the Word of God has certain right divisions. And the Bible is built according to a certain law, a certain structure. And that must be observed and obeyed as you go through the Word of God. And you just can't lift out a verse here and a verse there and ignore a passage here and a passage there. Now, that's actually the main reason that we teach the entire Word of God. Because my feeling is today that it's so easy to pick out a passage here and a passage there. But the Bible is not that kind of a book. Now, I quoted to you some time ago from an article. Now, here's a quotation from that. Now, this reveals the ignorance of a man to recognize that the Word of God is one great unity that needs to be rightly divided to properly understand it. Now, I'm quoting him. In short, one way to describe the Bible, written by many different hands over a period of 3,000 years and more, could be to say that it is a disorderly collection of sixty-odd books, which are often tedious, barbaric, obscure, and teeming with contradictions and inconsistencies. It is a swarming compost of a book, an Irish stew of poetry and propaganda, law and legalism, myth and murk, history and hysteria. Now, may I say to you, that that man really speaks a mouthful. And his verbiage is, I would say, quite verbose. And that he reveals here a woeful ignorance of the Bible. And he reveals also what comes when anyone does not rightly divide the Word of God. Now, what do you mean by rightly dividing the Word of God? There are certain dispensations in the Word of God and it is a different method whereby God dealt with man, always on the basis of the death of Christ being the method of salvation. But man expresses his faith in God in a different way. 
Abraham brought a little lamb. So did Abel. And I hope you don't take a lamb to church next Sunday morning. You're going to be entirely out of order. Now, it's all right for Mary, who had a little lamb that followed her to school. But your little lamb shouldn't follow you to church today. Because already the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world has come. We look back. Now, that's rightly dividing the word of truth. I wish that man knew a little bit about the Bible before he writes about it. And when he says it's the book that almost nobody reads, I think he belongs to that class. And before any man can speak authoritatively on any subject, he ought to know the subject to a certain extent. And I'd recommend that this brother study the Word of God. Now, a child of God today needs to do that. And I do want to say to you, when I began, I went to my denominational school, and to me it was utter confusion, the Bible was. And I would rather have agreed with this man. And then there was put in my hands a Schofield Reference Bible. And I got under the teaching of a wonderful pastor. And that led me to listen to men back in the old days like Dr. Harry Ironside, Dr. Louis Perry Schaefer, Dr. Arthur I. Brown. And those men bless my heart and bless my soul. And the Bible became a new book. That's what he's telling Timothy here. Now he tells him, though, to shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. That is, all of this that comes to no profit whatsoever to the individual. And therefore, he is to avoid all of this. Now he says, And their word will eat as doth a gangrene, of whom are Hymenetus and Philetus. Now, I don't know much about these two men that he mentions here, but they were apostates. Who concerning the truth, now this is verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. See, actually, in that day, there were some that were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place, and that would mean anyone still around, they'd missed it. Now we come to verse 19 here, and let me read this. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, back in the Old Testament, you will recall that the Israelite was commanded to write out a scripture and put it on his house. In other words, he was to make his house a billboard for the Word of God. And you see all this idea of display advertising today, outdoor display advertising, Oh, it certainly makes the things that are wrong in this world look right and very attractive. Beer and liquor and many other things that are revealed there. The nightclubs, it all looks very attractive when it's on a billboard. Well, we don't put up the Word of God much today, and if it's going to be put up, friends, make sure that you write it out attractively. I think it hurts the cause of Christ to have some crude scripture written. That is, written crudely, I should say, and put up. 
Now, God told his people over in the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, he says, "...thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. They shall be as frontlets between thy eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates." Now, they were told to do that. Now, on the church. The church has two scriptures. Number one is, the Lord knows who are his. But how are the folk on the outside to know? Well, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And friends, that's the way that on the outside they're going to know. And that's what separation is. Separation is separation from evil, and it is separated unto Christ. If you name the name of Christ, they sure you're not living in sin. And we have today, unfortunately, some that are great about asserting doctrines and that they are fundamental in the faith. And it turns up that they've had an affair with some woman or that they have dropped into sin and been proven dishonest or something like that. Well, my friend, the way the world outside's going to know is that that sign that's on the church, you don't need it there because God knows his own. But outside, the world's going to know by the life you live, and that's the only way they're going to know. And that's what he means here. Now he says, "...but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor." Now, This is the sixth figure of speech that's used, a vessel. Verse 21 now, "...if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and fit for the master's use, and prepared for every good work." Now, here is a picture, if you please, of a vessel, different kinds of vessels. You remember that when we were studying Jeremiah in the 18th chapter? that we went down and saw the potter making a vessel. Well, that vessel is to be a vessel of honor, and it must be clean to be usable. In other words, if you went to a spring, suppose that you were actually dying of thirst, walking across the desert, you come to an oasis. There are two cups there. There's a golden cup there, highly ornamented, but it's dirty. And then there's an old crop. Up. It's broken, actually, but it'll hold water. And by the way, it is a clean one. Which one would you use? Well, now, give God credit for having as much intelligence as you have. God uses clean vessels. He doesn't use dirty vessels. And you remember the Lord Jesus took those old crops there at that wedding in Cana, Galilee, dragged them out. They were used for the ceremonies that went with Judaism. And he had them fill it with water. And he took those old broken, beat-up, bent crocks and used them. God today is looking for clean vessels. And that's what he's saying here. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, love, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. How many times has he put together a life of faith, of love, and peace? And that is the thing that sums up the Christian life. Now, that is not something that should be just mouthed continually from the pulpit, and it becomes saccharine sweetness. 
but it's something that should get down in the pew and should be lived out. Now, verse 23, "...but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they breed stripes." Don't go into a lot of all of this arguing today. I get letters. People want to argue with me about some statement I've made. Actually, it was not an important statement, but it had to do with some minor thing. Well, friends, don't write me those letters because those are letters that I don't answer. I don't have time for that today. And we're living in a world that's on fire today. We need to get the Word of God out. And let's not argue. If you disagree with me, the chances are that you're right and I'm wrong. But I'm hard-headed. You'd never straighten me out. So let's just keep going and getting the Word out. Now, verse 24, we come to the seventh and last. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose them, if God perhaps will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And this is strange now. This is the seventh and last figure of speech. The soldier was to fight, but the servant, he is not to fight. And what do we have here? Contradiction? No paradox. My friend, when you're standing for the truth, there are times for you to stand on your two feet and let people know where you stand. Don't be a coward. Somebody said that silence is golden, but sometimes it's yellow. Stand for the truth. But when you're trying to win a lost man, don't argue with him. If he disagrees with you, let him disagree with him. Just keep giving him the Word of God. How wonderful this is. Verse 26, "...and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him and his will." Isn't this wonderful? Seven figures of speech that set before us the child of God. 